Welcome to the SJBC Sunday Morning Sermon. We hope you enjoy this message brought to you by our senior pastor, Dr. Richard Carver. For more podcasts, videos, and information on our church, please visit mysjbc.org. Thank you. Join me in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, page 947 there in your pew Bible. I don't know about you all, but in my neighborhood, during the pandemic, when people were afraid to go to hotels and beaches and lakes and whatnot, there was a, a, a slew of my neighbors began buying campers. Anybody have that happen around them? There were probably, and I'm not exaggerating, there's 115 houses in my development, and there were probably about 16 or 17 trailers bought during the pandemic. My neighbor across the street bought a really, really, really nice one. And I walked over there just a few months ago and, and admired their, their camper. I mean, it was super, super nice. I mean, it was plush. I mean, if you went from their living room to their camper, you'd feel like you were just in the same place. I mean, it was that comfortable, that plush. I mean, it was a, a full kitchen with a full dining room table. My, my parents had a camper when I, when I was a kid, and the shower was kind of triangle-shaped, and you just kind of turned in the water, you know, to, to wash. And and, it, and that was good. But their shower had a whole bathtub in it. I mean, man, it was it was super, super nice. And and they, uh, they're drinkers, and he had a great big bar, and he flung open his cabinets, and he had lined up all kind of alcoholic beverages and things I wasn't aware of, and a big old ice maker, and all the different kind of glasses you need to drink those different kinds of alcoholic beverages. I mean, it was as plush as plush could be. I mean, it was a super nice motorhome. I mean, when, when I was a kid, I mean, when we first started going camping, we had to, to build a fire. And then you'd go to bed smelling like smoke because you sat around the fire. My mother would, we had two or three great big old cast iron kettles and everything we ate was some kind of stew. We had fish stew, beef stew, vegetable stew because it was all just put in that pot and then you, you know, you cook the meats on, on, on the lid and, and we would carry water from a water thing. You'd pull the handle up and uh, spick it out in the middle of somewhere and you'd fill up your bucket and then you'd bring the water back to the house. And then when you got home, you'd empty your septic tank. Yeah, because you had to bring that home with you too. And so you'd come home and bring your empty. Now for us, we emptied it into the creek. You'd go to jail if you did that today and be fined about $10,000 from the EPA. But, but we would empty that into the, to, to the, to the creek and, and get rid of it. But today, there's no more dirt. I mean, when you go camping today, yeah, there's no more dirt, there's no more smoke from the fire, you don't have to carry your water back into the camper. Now, now it's possible today to go camping and never go outside. Isn't that amazing? You can go camping, and the only time you've got to go outside is when you exit your vehicle and get into the camper. Now, we, we buy motorhomes. To, with, to see new sites and to go new places, and my neighbors across the street were so excited explaining to me how they were going to use their camper. And they went all these places. The neighbors kind of corner from us bought a camper so long that they had to put in a whole new driveway. I mean, it's just a monstrosity of a camper. I, and I didn't go inside theirs, but I can only imagine the luxury inside theirs. And so, and we, we deck out our, our, our campers with all the same things that they have in the living room. When our neighbors across the street opened up their camper to me, they only had a few days. Uh, his wife was carrying in dishes that matched the dishes inside the house. So they, it would kind of feel in the camper, kind of like it felt in the house. So it would kind of feel the same, kind of the same kind of dishes, same kind of cookware, same kind of eating utensils, all that was kind of the same. And, and they were decking out their living room. They had paintings on the wall of their camper, just like they did inside their house. It was amazing. And nothing really changes. They were hoping to go new places. And then they might drive a new place and pull that trailer somewhere. And they might put themselves in new surroundings. But really, the newness goes unnoticed because you've really only carried along your old setting. You've just put the house that you have on wheels and 
brought the house with you. The adventure of a new Christian life begins when the comfortable patterns of old life really are left behind. So here's a question for you. Are you so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good? Are you so focused on the things of God, so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good? Now, the reverse of that question is also apropos. Are you so earthly minded that you're no heavenly good? I mean, so it's both. Are you so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good? Or are you so earthly minded that you're no heavenly good? And if we can answer yes to either of those questions, then there's a, a fair likelihood that, that our life is out of balance, that we're just carrying along everything with us. Scripture helps us understand that Christians live a balanced life. And there's a great need today for living a balanced Christian life. And there are some things that can help us get our lives into proper alignment. And we want to do that. We want to live a balanced Christian life. Now, the, the road to being spiritually healthy, uh, it's not easy. It's tough. It's got some mountains. It's got some valleys. It's got some pitfalls. And it's not the road more traveled, but it's it's the road less traveled, and it's not easy, but it's more than worth it. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Paul tells us, for we are God's handiwork. That means God's using his hands to work on us, that we're God's creation. My father was a carver, and I don't mean a carver by last name carver. I mean, he carved things. And one of the things that he carved where he would take peach seeds and once they had dried, he would carve animals out of peach seeds. And I've got, uh, you know, the, the three monkeys, hear no evil, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. I've got a series of, of monkeys that, that look like that, that he's carved out of peach seeds. I've got squirrels with fluffy tails. I've got rabbits. I've got horses. All sorts of different animals that dad would carve with out of peach seeds. And... <clears throat> He would make toys out of peach seeds. He called it a hooey stick. And you would slide the, the stick one way, and he would, it had a propeller on it, and he'd say hooey, and the propeller would begin to turn the other way. And I know the secret. I won't ever tell you. But there's a way to make a propeller change directions. And, and he made little puzzles, that you would have to blow those mind-boggling little puzzles out of peach seeds. And, and he would take and carve those peach seeds and make good things out of them. It was his handiwork. Paul says that you're God's handiwork. Not a hobby, but a child. God's personally involved in your development. We want to kind of hold that back here. And then he says, we're God's handiwork, but we're created in Christ. Now that happened the moment you accepted Christ as your Savior and Lord, that you were created in Christ. And you were created in Christ to do good works. So God is working He's working in your life, but in Christ, he's also expecting us to do good work. Not just any old work, but good work. And then he says, God, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Now, there's a lot packed into this verse. We want to unpack it uh, today. But Paul is writing to encourage believers who want to live properly balanced Christian lives that's based on a scriptural perspective. And for me, that's the only viable perspective. We, we must examine scripture and, and apply it to our lives. One of the things that, that I always coach soccer for high school soccer for 18 years. And one of the things I, I would tell players is you've got to be coachable. You know, if your coach says to do this, whether you understand it or not, you need to do that. If the coach asks you to, to, to run this way or go in that direction or to tackle, you need to do what your coach is saying because your coach sees the big picture and you're focused in and, and they've got experience that you don't have and you need to be coachable. Anytime I would have a player that would not follow direction, I'd say, you're not being coachable today. Why don't you sit on the bench and watch somebody who's coachable? Well, that would always motivate them. All right, I'll be coachable. You want me to run, I'll run. You want me to stop, I'll stop. To be coachable. For us, it's important that we're coachable. And scripture, and we call it a biblical application is what we call it. But what we're saying is we want to be biblical coachable, biblically coachable. We want to approach scripture and, and experience it, embrace it, read it, understand it, so that we're coached by scripture. And it's all for us. Because God's telling us what he expects from us and what we can expect from him because he wants us to live 
balanced Christian lives. And, and all of us are a work in progress. None of us are where we need to be or where we ought to be or where God wants to have us be at precisely. And there are a lot of resources out there that we can turn to. I mean, there are thousands of books that we could turn to. There are hundreds and hundreds of podcasts that we could listen to, all kinds of websites that we could go to to help us live the Christian life that, that emphasizes God's grace in us. But the question is, can we really trust those people? I mean, there are a lot of people out there who, who, pre, who are preaching and teaching and don't have one understanding of God's expectation. They're just doing it for the money, for the notoriety, for the attention. Having a balanced life means that we create time for the things that we have to do as well as time for the things that we want to do. Now, there are things in life that we have to do. We have to do them. You have to brush your teeth. If you don't brush your teeth, you won't have any real teeth to brush. You might have teeth, but you'll take yours out at night and put them in a little cup. You know, unless you get them knocked out in a fight or something like that. But you have to brush your teeth. You've got to bathe. You've got to immerse ourselves in God's Word. We've got to surrender ourselves to God. We all have to eat and sleep every day. Many of us have to work. Some of us go to school. And it's, it's my firm conviction that a believer's life is to be based on and around Scripture. There's no other, really no other resource that will help us and guide us to fulfilling what God has for us. We're His handiwork. And if we want to do the good things that he's prepared in advance for us to do, then we've got to be coachable by him. And the Bible has something to say about being a healthy, balanced person. And since scriptural is our, our final authority in all things, including health and wholeness and spirituality, we want to consult scripture and ask God, how do we live balanced lives from scriptural perspective? Well, thank, thankfully, God gives us some examples. In Luke chapter 2, we find that Jesus grew in wisdom, he grew in stature, and he grew in favor. Jesus grew three ways. He grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So he grew these ways, one, two, four ways. Four ways, in favor with God and in favor with man. He grew psychologically, he grew physically, he grew spiritually, and Jesus grew socially. Jesus, and he grew really into relation to himself. And God the Father and other people too, but simply put, balanced people function as God has designed and intended for us to function. Now, the, in the Bible, the balance, uh, the balance is viewed as completeness or wholeness. So I want you to think about this. Can we be emotionally, mentally, and socially healthy without also being spiritually healthy? Can we? Can we be an emotionally healthy person, mentally healthy person, socially healthy person, physically healthy, without also being spiritually healthy? I guess to expand it farther, can we function the way God intends for us to function without being rightly related to Jesus Christ? And the answer is no. We're always going to come up short in all those areas unless we're rightly related to Jesus Christ. And we must be spiritually healthy and in a right relationship to, with Jesus to find the kind of balance that God is helping us understand through Scripture because it's impossible for a believer to live apart from God and find balance. And, and John helps us here. John connects, in 3 John, for, for, in 3 John 2, he connects our well-being to our spiritual health. Look what John writes. He says, Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you even as your soul is getting along well. <clears throat> if we look at this more carefully, John writes, Dear friend, I pray that you may be physically healthy, and that you may be, that all may go well with you socially, even as your spiritual, your soul, is getting along well. John is saying it right there. A spiritually healthy Christian has a balanced life, emotionally. Physically, spiritually, socially, all the same ways that Jesus was balanced. It's very simple. There's a very simple way to identify imbalance. If we love anything more than we love God, then our lives are out of balance. You say, well, I don't love anything more than God. 
But don't let this slip off your tongue so quickly. Be coachable here. Allow Scripture to open your heart and your mind and the Holy Spirit to speak. And be honest and authentic in your self-evaluation. Is there anything you love more than God? Anything that displaces God's rightful place in our lives can become an, an idol. And we know that, that, that idol worship is sinful. Even things that are good in themselves can become idolatrous to us. And that includes our spouse, our children, our, our grandchildren, even our, our lay service here at South Jefferson. If we love them more than God, if we think about them more than God, you know, it's, it's, that, it's that balancing act. Maintaining a healthy biblical balance, you know, it's a lifelong challenge. And we need to be less concerned with what others think and more concerned about what God is thinking because ultimately we're going to be with him for eternity. And so balance is the key uh, with our eyes always fixed on, on the word of God and on the will of God. And we're to love God first and foremost and then everyone else. And when God tells us to worship only him and love him, God's not being selfish by telling us that. Because the object that we worship, the object of worship, will carry with it the weight of our ultimate expectation. The thing that we worship is what we expect the most from. Now, what do you expect the most from in your life? Is it from your employer, your, your paycheck week to week, or every other week, or once a month? Is, it, is that the thing that you're motivated to think about is my check's coming in, I can go to the grocery, or I can fill up my car, or get glasses, or a pair of shoes, or whatever it is. What is it that drives you? See, the, the object of worship will always carry the weight of expectation. And the low, really, is too heavy for anyone except for Christ. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That's all four areas in which Jesus grew. He grew mentally, he grew physically, he grew socially, he grew spiritually. And all the ways that Jesus grew, he's saying here that, that that's how we ought to grow. Now he's describing for us in part the responsibilities of every Christian. And it begins with simple, total devotion to God, no matter what the cost is, no matter the inconvenience. And when a person accepts Christ as their Savior and Lord, we are in that moment separating ourselves from all other possible gods. I mean, there is a, a definitive line drawn in the sand there. The moment we say, Christ, my loyalty is to you, I accept you as my Lord and Savior, there's no room for other gods. Not any. I mean, that, that, that's, a, that's a hard stop right there for all of us. And we give ourselves completely to God, and the Holy Spirit then begins to work in us to give us the kind of balance that we need. And when he works in us, he empowers us to live a godly life in really in this ungodly world. And that means that the only way to grow a balanced life then is to give ourselves totally and completely to God. And then follow him by faith. Are you coachable there? Will you do that? Will you... Will you surrender totally to God, everything, and follow him by faith? In general terms, a, a balanced life is lived according to biblical principles. And that sounds simple enough. I'm going to live my life by the Bible. I'm going to do what the Bible says. I'm going to tell you, that's really kind of tough. To, to, to make that pronouncement and then to fulfill it. That's a, that's a big ticket to fill. It, it's tough. It means that, that every area of our life has to be holy. Every area. God said, be holy because I'm holy. And that means to be holy in everything and in every part of our life. Now, I'm going to tell you, that's pretty tough. But it's still expected that we live that way. God said, be holy for I'm holy. So here's what we can do. I'll give you just a few things to think about. To live a balanced Christian life, we need to spend unhurried time with God. Now, we might spend time with God in prayer and a quick Bible reading in the morning. But notice the use of the word unhurried. To spend unhurried time with God. 
We're tempted to think that, that, that spending time with God is Bible reading. We read our Bible and then jot the few things down that we might have thought about over that 10 or 15 minutes of Bible reading. And then after we jot that down in our journal, then we spend four, five, six minutes in prayer. And then we say, I've done it. That's it. But in reality, it's more than that. Yes, it is that. It's Bible reading and prayer. But it's more than that. Believers need to spend unhurried time with the Lord. Where you're not rushing. You know how you do when family comes over you haven't seen for a long time and you just want to sit down? And you get together. And it doesn't matter if the phone rings, you don't answer it. It doesn't matter if you get a notification that you've got an email or a messenger. You just ignore it. Because you want to be with family. You want to focus your attention on family. Or with your grandchildren. I mean, the world could be falling apart outside the trees falling down in a storm. But you're going to spend unhurried time with those grandbabies. Because you might not get tomorrow. And you want them to love you more than they love the other grandparents, let's be honest. You know, and so you're, you're unheard. Spending time with them. It means that we take time to enjoy God's presence. That we communicate with Him. And communication is two-way. We speak, definitely. But we also listen. You know, God still speaks today. Just, we never slow down long enough to hear what He has to say. I mean, we might hear a few glimpses and a few bleeps whenever we jot down things in our journal. We're having our quiet time every day. But spending time with God is not a waste of time. In truth, it's, it's the secret to spending the rest of your day well. And I was thinking about my quiet. I, I try to have my quiet time in the morning. Some people have it in the afternoon. Some people have it in the evenings. But let me explain to you why I have my quiet time in the morning. It's not always convenient in the Particularly if somebody's got a 5 a.m. show up at the hospital surgery. That's a hard one. When I need to be there when you expect me to be there. So it's not always easy. And sometimes the water's boiling over in the kettle. But my, my thinking is this. My morning is the foundation of every day. Every new day is a brand new day. And that day, I get to spend that day however I want to spend that day. And so whatever I do in the first part of my day is the foundation for that day. And all day, I'm building up on the foundation for however I started my day. So for spouses, don't start a fight with your other spouse in the morning because that runs the rest of the day. You know, it matters how we start off our day. Don't answer emails first thing in the morning. I don't even pick up my phone first thing I get up. I don't look at my phone until I've been up for an hour or so, or sometimes an hour and a half or two hours. I just sit there. I don't, I don't go to my cell phone first. That's not my idol. That's not my God. So I don't go to it first. I don't turn the television on first. That's not my idol. That's not my God. First thing I do is turn on my coffee maker. That may be my idol. But I turn on my coffee maker. And I wait for my idol to make that elixir of life. And I take that elixir of life and I go into my study and I tell Alexa, Alexa, turn on reading light. <laughs> Boom, my light comes on. And I sit down in my chair and I start my day. That's the foundation of my day. My day starts like this. I've got a prayer book and I pull my prayer book off the shelf and my prayer book is aligned seven days a week. I don't pray the same prayers. I don't pray for the same things every day of the week, but I pray different things on seven days in the week. And so I pull my prayer journal off the shelf, and I never leave it laying on my coffee table because I don't ever want anybody to pick it up and read what I'm praying about. That's between me and God. Not that anybody in my house would ever do that, but someone might. And so I put it back up on the shelf. But I pull that off the shelf. I get out my prayer journal, my Bible, and I sit down in my chair, and I start my day, and I read from two or three different devotional guides, I read from the Psalms every day. And then I read from whatever book of the Bible I'm reading from. And I read systematically. I don't just, you know, stick my finger and read that. I'll read through a book of the Bible or I'll read things. Like I'll read all the verses that have to do with water. And so I'm just going through my concordance and reading things about water. 
Be, you'd be amazed at how many times John mentions the word water in the Gospel of John. You'd be surprised at how many times Mark says the word mystery in the Gospel of Mark. It's just little things like that, that, that when I'm reading my quiet time, I'm like, man, I've read that word like six or seven times. I wonder how many times that word is in this book. And then after I read my, my well, I have a brief prayer first. God open my eyes. And then I do that. And then I jot down in my journal, I keep a journal, what I read that day, any thoughts I might have, and then I close it, and then I have my prayer time. I pray for you. Pray for your needs. This morning I ran into uh, Jerry and, and uh, Martha Arthur's daughter, Kroger, yesterday, picking up things for the youth event. And she told me about her dad, and her mom, and things that's going on. And You know, I was praying for her as we separated. I was in a hurry and she was in a hurry. But this morning I was praying for Jerry and Martha and a particular need that she shared with me. Jerry's lost complete sight in one eye and not able to return. Martha's got some other significant health things going on. And so that was in my prayer time this morning. I prayed for today's worship service. prayed for the people that would be here that wouldn't be here. And then I finished my prayer time and then I'm done. Sometimes it's 30 minutes. Sometimes it's 45 Sometimes it's two hours. Sometimes it's all morning long. But what I do in the morning is the foundation for my day. And everything else that I do for the day is built upon the foundation that I laid in the morning. That's why I have my quiet time in the morning. For me, if I wait to do it in the afternoon, then something else is in the foundation of my day. For, for me personally. Now for you, afternoon may work. And you may not be whatever problem I have to have to have in the morning, you may, have, you may not have that problem. But for me, emotionally, spiritually, I need to have it in the morning. I don't have it at night because if I have my quiet time at night and then go to bed, I mean, I've only thought about God for like 30 minutes and then I'm gone. I haven't really thought about him all day, so I don't want him to be like the dressing on the top or the decoration. I want God in the foundation of my day. So I have my quiet time in the morning. And for us, to live a balanced life, we have to spend unhurried time with God. Mornings may not work for you. And if it doesn't, don't feel guilty. Do it when you can. Just make it unhurried. Take your time. Remember, you're laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And this may work differently for different people. The time and location really are not as important as the consistency in truth. Although for me, I think the earlier the better in the day. But when we spend time with God as though he's physically there, there's what's called a gestalt technique when you're doing counseling. And it's where you kind of do a role play thing to help people walk through a trauma in their life. And that was one of the areas I was trained in when I got my CPE hours in counseling and seminary. And it's where you, you, you kind of talk to an empty chair with the the candidate, the person you're giving counseling with, to help them get rid of some of the pain they're carrying. It's good to envision God right there in the room with you. Now, I don't know what you think God looks like, and we don't want to debate that, but it, and it doesn't really matter. There's only been a few people seeing God. They're no longer on this earth. You know, and, but a vision, imagine God in the room with you. Because in truth, he is. Scripture says he sticks closer than a brother. Now, I've never had a brother. But if I had one, I would like for him to stick real close to me. But he sticks closer than a brother. Hebrews tells us that he never leaves. You might want him to leave. You might want to commit some kind of illicit sin that you don't want him to see. And you're thinking, God, I wish you weren't here right now. But in truth, he's there. So why not in your quiet time... Instead of hurrying through some kind of prayer in your mind, just talk to him. Good morning, God. How's your day? I got a lot going on today. And just tell him about your day. Share with him. And if we could spend time with God on that intimate kind of level, as though he's physically there with us, can you imagine how the communication between you and God might change? We, we grow in our understanding of him. Not only will we see him as our God, but we'll 
begin to learn him as a father and see him as a father. We'll begin to see him as a partner and learn him as a friend, as a confidant. We all need confidants. That one that we can tell something, someone something to that we can't tell anybody else. Number one, live, spend unheard time with God. Number two, to live a balanced life, you've got to find rest. Now, in my family, being a minister, Sunday is a work day for me. I know for many people, Sunday's the only day a preacher works, but that's mostly not true. We actually do work other days of the week. Uh, and we try to put in 40 to 50 hours just like everybody else. But for me, Sundays, today is not my day of rest. It hasn't been for 36 years, 35 years. It has not been my day of rest. never has been for those years. Because I work today. My Sabbath is Saturday. On Saturday, I don't mow the grass if I can help it. We don't do laundry. We don't do anything. But we might go for a drive. We might go shopping or something. But most of our Saturdays, they're at home just relaxing, just being family. For us now, being empty nesters, being a couple. In today's society, we get so busy. I mean, I've got a calendar and, and and schedule, and, and I've got things on my calendar, honestly, that are on my calendar for next December. That sounds crazy. And this December hadn't even gotten here yet. We put some things on our calendar this week for next year. But they're there. I mean, we, 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 we think that packing our schedule with activities and rushing from A to B, that, that, that that's what it's like, like. But we lose the art of resting when we live that way. And we forget that, that rest is God's idea. And that's not my idea. This is not my idea of getting rest. This was God's. Matter of fact, God created the rest in Genesis 2. He's the one who made it. If God had not made rest, remember, God created all that there is, and nothing exists without God making it. Even rest would not exist without God making it. And God made rest in Genesis chapter verse 2 and 3 if you want to go look God made rest God created the world in 6 days and what did he do on the 7th he rested you think he was wore out no. think he was tired of thinking about new things to create I read an, uh, an article this week did you know that, that, that they found 240 species of new animals last year on our planet 240 new species of animals. I mean, these are whole new things. It's not like that these are like one kind of frog and a different kind of frog. I mean, 240 new things that doesn't have another thing like it. Where you could put it in a category, like, you know, frog is all things frog. 240 new, new things last year. The article, it says that they estimate that there are probably about a million more new things, new animals that have not yet been discovered. Most of them be in the water, but that they have not yet discovered because we just can't go down that deep in the ocean. To me, that's amazing. God made a lot of stuff in six days. I mean, we just see the stuff that's kind of around our house, the stuff we pass on the way to work and maybe look up at the sky. And, I mean, that's a lot of stuff. I mean, if we had to make that stuff, it would, that would be hard just to make the stuff we see in six days. But God made that stuff and then all the stuff we don't see. Like even space between our hands. You know, there was no space between my hands until God made it. My hands would be like this. But God made space, and now I can do that. I mean, God made everything. But then he rested on the seventh day. Not because he was tired. But if you go read Genesis 2, verse 2 and 3, he rested on the seventh day, and it says, so that he could bless it. Did you know that there's only one day of the week that God blessed? If you go back and look at creation, God said it was good. But there's only one day that God said that he blessed that day. And that's the day of rest. God blessed your rest day. God took a seventh day off, not for us. I mean, not for him, but for us. And God was emphasizing the importance of resting by creating an entire day for it. When was the last time you rested? Not being serious. You just rested. How often do we really rest to take time out of our usual routines? 
Now, I could be spending a whole day with God or going for an afternoon drive through the countryside, but whatever it is that reinvigorates or recharges, let that help draw you closer to God. Get some rest. To live a balanced Christian life, practice gratitude. We had the youth over yesterday, and I don't think they were prompted, but Stephanie went and got on the van and said, thanks for coming over. Charles and Jacqueline were leaving with the youth. Yes, they came over uh, to swim and cookout and all of them in different ways and in multiple different utterings said thanks to Stephanie now that felt good I know it felt good to her because as soon as she got out of the van you know what the first thing she said to me was those kids said thanks that moved her and it moved her because later on in the night she said you know all those kids said thanks and some of them said it this way and this way. It, it moved her to say that these kids would say thank you. And Voskamp wrote that thanksgiving always precedes the miracle. Our problem is that, that we're not satisfied in God, and we're not satisfied in what God gives. One of the little boys, I say little boy, he's a teenager. He came in the front door, and our sign on you know, the door says, take off your shoes. And, of course, none of them took off their shoes, so I had to remind them to take off their shoes. And so they went back and took off their shoes, and the young man spied the guest bedroom bed from the front door. He went in there and jumped as high as he could and landed on that bed. Now, I didn't know that. So we were cleaning up after the kids had left, and I told Stephanie, I said, somebody's been climbing on this bed. <laughs> she said, oh, no, they weren't climbing on it. She said the young man's name. She said, he was jumping all over and falling backwards going, man, this is a big bed. He must sleep on a twin. <laughs> but, man, this is a big bed. Just falling back in the bed, enjoying himself. He was enjoying. We're not satisfied with God. We used to sing a song. He's got a great big house with a great big table. The great big room with lots and lots of food when I was a kid, our youth director. See, we're always hungering for more, something more, something other. We're just hungering for it. Psalms 118.24 says, The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Just tell God thank you. Best Camp says saying thank you is the beginning of a miracle. Because it opens our eyes and reminds us what God has done. Because, you know, God sustains us with his breath every day of life. How are we not going to be thankful for that? Every day of our life. When we practice daily gratitude, it's not God that changes. We change. We see what we haven't seen before. And what we see is God's fingerprints in our life. We have handles on our door. But after the kids were over there, we also have about 10 million fingerprints on our glass. We haven't cleaned them yet. I actually stood and looked at them this morning, right before we left. I mean, there are fingerprints from my head height, so some of those kids are putting their hands way up high. And I was admiring the fingerprints, thinking, man, those kids were here. That's testimony that they were here. They're gone. The house is clean. We vacuum, we sweat, and everything's put up because if you've ever been to our house, we like it neat and clean. But not the fingerprints. There's fingerprints all over your life. And they're God's. And we've got to learn to see that, that God is touching our life and find joy and commitment. And just look for God's fingerprints in your life because I promise you they're there. Because we just read that we are his handiwork. We're the work of his. God's fingerprints are all over your life. Look for them. Notice them. And then say, God, thank you for that. Fourth, to live a balanced Christian life, we've got to focus on God. And you're like, uh, that's a no-brainer. Well, let's think about it. What I'd like for you to do, just a little test right here. Hold your Bible out, if you're willing to do this, as far away as you can from your face. Just as, get it out there way up. As far away from your face as you can. 
Now, I'm holding my Bible here, and I'm telling you, I can still see a lot of y'all. I can see some of you in the back and on the side, and I can see the, the lights and the stained glass window. I can see all, I can still see around me. You can too if you hold your Bible straight up in front of your face. But if you begin to bring, unless it's on your phone, like Logan's, if you begin to bring your Bible to your face, the closer it gets, you're going to find out that there's less in this room that you see. Eventually, if you get this Bible close enough, the only thing you'll be able to see is the Word. You won't be able to see anything else. Of course, it doesn't mean that everything else is there, but this does help us to change our view and perspective. Our focus is now on God. It's not on all the other stuff that's going around us. We sing that hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. I like that song. Look full into his glorious face. And then it says, The things of this earth will grow strangely dim. Strangely dim. What causes it to go dim? The light of his glory and grace. And that's so true. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, we'll find ourselves being less tempted. I've been thinking about temptation lately. And I've come to the understanding that temptation is an invitation. Every time we're tempted, it's an invitation. Now since God doesn't tempt us, we know who's sending the invitation. So anytime you're tempted to do anything that would be less than honorable, less than holy, that would be ungodly, whatever it might be. Anytime you're tempted to do something that God would not approve of, it's an invitation. And we know it's not from God, it's from Satan. And every invitation that Satan sends, sometimes, you know, we got a wedding invitation this week. And we were excited to get the wedding invitation. I got a nephew getting married, and we're like, hooray! Nephew getting married. We were glad to get it. We decided immediately, okay, we're going. We like getting invitations. Sometimes we even like being invited through temptation. I mean, it's kind of fun. Be honest. When you get tempted to do something, you're like, oh, yeah, maybe, well, just a little. But we have to remember that every temptation is an invitation from Satan. And any invitation from Satan is an invitation to prison. So when you're tempted, as glamorous as it might seem, as fun as it might seem, or thrilling, or exciting, or yes, whatever invigoration you might experience in the moment of that temptation, in the back of your mind, you've got to hold there remember that every temptation you experience is an invitation from Satan because he wants to put you in prison. We used to do a skit when I was a youth director called The Sin Box. And we had a purple box, and the youth decorated it up as a great big box, and they had sin written on the side of it. And it was a pretty box. And the skit kind of played out like this. A youth would walk past the box and say, well, that's sin, and just keep going, because it was sin. They couldn't get involved with that sin. And then they would walk back and forth past that box, and, and occasionally they would look in the box, and finally they said, oh. But they kept on walking. And then they came back to the box, and they just stuck their toe, just their toe. Whoa, oh, yeah. <laughs> and they pulled their foot back out and walked away. And then they came back to the box, and this time they stuck a foot all the way in. And man, they were enjoying that sin until they put the other foot in. And they were caught in that sin. Another youth would come by and try to pull them out. And that youth could not pull them out because they were bound in sin. They got caught in prison because a temptation is an invitation to prison. And then finally someone dressed up like Jesus would come and pull them out. Because only Jesus can set us free when we're bound in prison. So when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we'll find ourselves being less tempted. That's why it's important to focus upon God. We'll be less overwhelmed by the lures and challenges of this world. Balanced living begins when we recognize that, that we're weak and that we need God's help, and we do. He becomes our strength to get through every day. And finally, 
to live a balanced Christian life, we've got to die to ourselves. See, finding balance for a believer, it's a daily pursuit. It's, it's every day. I mean, just put it on your calendar. Don't miss a day. See how many days you can consecutively have a quiet time. And if you hit a bump and you don't have one, just, okay, start all over. But it means constantly saying no to the world and dying to fleshly desires. And we ought to move away from fleshly desires and to seek the Spirit's leading and guidance really in everything. And that means for for us that that proper self-examination happens in light of God's standards. This is where we want to be coachable. And I've shared a lot of stuff with you today. Be coachable. Be coachable. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you today. And when we do, we'll find that shortcomings, and that's when we... Seek his forgiveness for falling short. I'm bringing a new sermon series starting next week, and I'm excited about it. It's called God Is. Next week, God is our refuge out of Psalm 46. The following week, it's God is a forgiver. And I want to talk about what it means to be forgiven. What, what is that? What is that? God is a forgiver. God's grace renews us so that we can experience a closer relationship with him. And you're his child. You're a child of the Almighty. And live in that truth. As Jacqueline and, and comes, I read a story this morning about a, a, a pilot. And he was a very experienced commuter pilot. His name was Henry Dibson. And he was a small airplane pilot. And he would shuttle people from Portland, Maine, to Boston, Massachusetts, just a, a short little hop in this, uh, really, a private jet. And so there, there was a day when, when Henry Dipsy, the plane took off, and the plane had, had not been aloft for very long, and he heard a strange noise in the back of the aircraft. And he told his co-pilot, I'm going to go back here and check that out. And so Henry Dipsy walked back to the, to the end of the airplane, which wasn't very far, it was just a small plane, but walked to the back of the plane, and as soon as he got back there, he noticed that the door, the door was ajar. And when he reached up for the, to grab the handle of the door, suddenly the door flew open and sucked him out the back. Just like that. The co-pilot, the red light started flashing in the cockpit, and the alarm went off that the back door was open. So doing what a co-pilot would do, he looked back there, and Henry was not there. So he called the nearest airport and said, I've got to do an emergency landing. The pilot was sucked out the window. Send a helicopter to search over this area of the ocean. And sure enough, they sent a helicopter to, to search over that area of the ocean and, and got there really, really in no time at all. The plane landed about uh, a few minutes later. And, and when they did, they, they found Henry Dempsey holding on to the outside ladder of that plane. He'd been holding on to that ladder at 200 miles an hour, 4,000 feet in the air, for about 15 minutes. Can you imagine? Man, I'd have messed all over myself and everybody else. I mean, I, I can't imagine the fear of getting sucked out a door and then hanging on to a ladder at 4,000 feet, 200 miles an hour. When they landed, somehow he... He was hanging upside down. He managed to keep his head from hitting the runway. His head, they said, was only about 12 inches from the, the runway. I mean, as it landed. So, I mean, if the door didn't kill you, the, the runway would. It took the airport personnel, they said, like 45 minutes to get his fingers undone off the ladder without, you know, just shattering on breaking because he was hanging on so tightly. Things in this life might get turbulent. And you may feel like you don't want to hold on anymore, that life is such a mess. But have you ever considered the alternative? Living life that's balanced is the key. That's the key. And don't let go. Even if you get sucked out the back door, don't let go. Let's stand together as we sing. Oh, so are you with me?
That's good stuff right there. Have a good day. It's supposed to rain this afternoon. Set your plants out. Let God water the plants just like He waters you every day because He loves you. Good to be together. Remember, WMU's is this Saturday. Church Council Wednesday. Men's Prayer Breakfast on Tuesday. I'm going to say something I don't think I've ever said in my whole life. This will be the first time I ever said this. Are you ready? Miss Peach, would you close us in prayer?